So Money Episode 981, Best of 2019, Money and Relationships. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. With just days before the kickoff of 2020, I want to take the time to reflect on some of the larger themes that we've tackled on this podcast all year long. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. You know, we've had some incredible guests on the show. And in case you're interested in going back and listening or re-listening to some of the earlier episodes, these next few shows between now and the new year will hopefully provide some highlights of what I consider to be really important conversations. And maybe those clips will inspire you to go back and check out the fuller episodes. Today, we're reviewing some of the best conversations where guests and I have gone deep into the financial dynamics of various relationships. Coming up, we've got strategies and lessons from people who've worked through financial challenges, either with a partner or a parent, I like to think that So Money is a safe place where guests can talk about the intimate details of how they've had to manage through some pretty sticky money stuff with loved ones, from managing money as a couple, as you make the goal to retire early, or dealing with the fallout of a marriage and its financial consequences. We've got some of those select interviews to share with you today. But first, let's go back and listen to part of my financial conversation with Cameron Huddleston. She's an award-winning journalist with over 17 years of experience. Our discussion pertains to money and our aging parents. She was on the show episode 897 on June 10th. And in this excerpt, Cameron discusses how she dealt with firsthand the dealings of her mother's finances after her mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. It inspired Cameron to write a book called Mom and Dad, We Need to Talk, How to Have Essential Conversations with Your Parents About Their Finances. Here's Cameron. The reason I wrote this book is because I don't want people to make the same mistakes that I made. And and the biggest mistake is not talking to my mom soon enough. Even though I'm a financial journalist, I didn't realize this was a conversation I needed to have. And most people don't. They just don't realize how important it is to talk to your parents about their finances. And, you know, even if it dawns on us to have the conversation, we're afraid. We think, well, we don't want to be nosy or, you know, it's none of our business. Our parents are going to get upset. With my mother, the first time I talked to her about anything money related was about long-term care insurance. And I just point blank said, hey, mom, do you have long-term care insurance? I think you should look into it. She did. She took my advice. She met with an insurance agent. Unfortunately, she could not get coverage because of a pre-existing condition she had. And it was not dementia at the time. It was something else. And then, of course, what would happen a couple of years later, she started having memory issues. And, and looking back, I, you know, I see my mistake. At the time, I should have said to my mom, OK, you couldn't get long term care insurance. Let's sit down and look at your finances and come up with a plan. Let's figure out how you would be able to pay for long-term care if you ever needed it. Let's talk about the type of care you would want because she was living alone. She and my father had gotten divorced years before that. And so I knew 
looking back, you know, I, I should have been having that conversation with her then to figure out what we would do going forward, but I didn't. And fate being what it is, she ended up having memory issues, starting to have memory issues a few years later and developed dementia, which was diagnosed as Alzheimer's. And when I saw that she was having trouble with her memory, suddenly it was no longer a what if type of conversation. What if this happens, mom? Mm -hmm. It was, oh my gosh, this is happening. What are we going to do? And this is why people need to have these conversations sooner rather than later so that they can be so that they can be talking about hypothetical situations, not we're in the thick of it now. It's an emergency. Emotions are running high. How do we deal with this? You know, unfortunately, my mother and I have a very good relationship. I told her we need to go meet with an attorney right away, update all your legal documents. And we did that while she was still competent enough to sign those documents. But if you wait too long and your parents are no longer competent because of a health issue, because of memory issues, that's when you really get into trouble. That's, that's when the problems really start. And this is why people have to have these conversations. So I suppose the adage of it's never too late applies here, but always better to start early. When should you start to have this conversation with your parents? I mean, it's no secret that many people who are aging, we're living longer, we're not retiring as soon as maybe we, we'd like. And so that maybe there is this perception that, well, mom and dad are okay. You know, if they're good, if they're, if they're in good health and even if they're in their 60s and perhaps still working, like it's not appropriate to bring this up. So that's maybe the first question is when and then secondly, how? So if you are afraid or if you haven't ever done this before, what's a great way to break the ice? So as far as when I hear that all of the time, Farnoosh, we're not there yet. My parents are still in good health. You know, they haven't retired yet or they're about to retire why rush this conversation? I think you should be having these conversations before your parents are in their 60s. And I know that might seem early. I think when you're in your late 20s, you're in your early 30s and your parents are still in their 50s in good health. It is the perfect time to have this conversation. My mother was 65 when she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. That's relatively young, but it's not entirely unusual you know, people do have health issues at younger ages, even though we are living longer. You know, my, my father actually passed away when he was 61 and he died without a will, even though he was an attorney and should have known better, should have had a will. You know, so I think especially when you are younger, you're in such a good position to initiate these conversations without them being awkward, because when you're starting out, you can go to your parents and ask them for advice. Really, your sole goal here is to kind of get information about their finances, but make it look like you're asking them for advice. Hey, mom and dad, I just got married. Do I need a will now? Do I need life insurance? And their answers are going to give you clues to what they have done. They might say, oh yeah, of course, you know, we got a will the moment we got married or we got, we had wills drafted once we had you kids. We got life insurance once you had those, we had you kids. And then you take those answers and you continue the conversation. Or maybe you're just starting out in your first job. And you say to your parents, you know, I, I have an opportunity to save for retirement through work. What do you think? Should I be doing that? 
And then your parents are going to tell you either, hey, we have a pension. We never had to worry about that. Or yes, you should. We haven't saved enough for retirement. We wish we should have saved more. Just asking your parents for advice can open the door to more conversations. And it's something that you can do when you're younger. Once you're in your 40s, that's not the type of approach you can take because it's just not as natural to be asking your parents for advice when you're that age. When you're in your 40s, a good way to start the conversation is to use a story because by that point in your life, you're bound to know someone who has already started dealing with issues with their parents. Just like me, I'm in my 40s. My mother has Alzheimer's. I'm taking care of her. So you go to your parents and you say, hey, mom and dad, I know someone you know, she's she's having to take care of her mother who has Alzheimer's. She has to manage all of her finances. I'd really love to talk with you about what sort of planning we need to do around that, because I want to be able to help you if you ever need that sort of help. Or, hey, mom and dad, I have a friend whose father passed away without a will. It created all yes. sorts of headaches for the family members who were left behind. Let's make sure that doesn't happen to us. Or if you, you don't say, have your own story, if you don't have your own story, make up one if you right, have to. Or- Cameron goes on to offer some additional advice, which is that if you think you need to talk about money with your parents, don't make it about money in the beginning. Rather than asking, you know, how much do you have in retirement, mom? Try something like, what does retirement look like for you? And do you see yourself traveling? Where do you think you'd like to live? Cameron says that hopefully that will open the door to a more natural discussion about their finances. If you want to check out the full interview with Cameron Huddleston, that was episode 897. Next up, if you want to retire super early, it's one thing to convince your partner that this is your aggressive goal, but what about your parents, especially if your mom and dad are immigrants and have their mindset on what it means to be financially settled and stable, and that happens to go against your beliefs. Christy Shen came back on So Money this year, episode 909 in July, along with her husband, Bryce, and Christy was on the podcast a few years ago. I was doing a week-long special on early retirees, and Christy uh, definitely made the cut. She is Canada's youngest retiree ever. She built a $1 million portfolio by the age of 31 and then spent the next few years traveling the world. And she and her husband published a new book called Quit Like a Millionaire. In it, Christy documents her journey from childhood poverty in China to being fully financially independent and a millionaire in her 30s. I chose this excerpt because I think it captures pretty well the sometimes parental stress and influences that we can have on our finances, our financial decisions, especially when we're talking about some of the deep-rooted beliefs that tradition and culture insist upon. Here's Christy and Bryce. For you two, you know, we covered this on the first episode when you were on the show, but a large part of how you were able to build up your wealth and reach a million dollars, Christy, by age 31 uh, was because you ditched this path of home ownership which a lot of people are still really insistent upon. And, and of course, you did other things along the way, but that was a huge kind of expense that you skirted that then allowed you to save more aggressively. How are your people in your community and how are you really talking about the ways to save big? Because, you know, retiring in your 30s and 40s, and we'll talk about what retiring actually means, but even just the idea of quitting your job. And having, quote unquote, enough to sort of live on while you might do a passion revenue stream, I think is very jarring to people. So tell us a little bit about some of these big shifts that you encourage people to make that you've even made. 
Oh, yeah. I think, okay, so, you know, because we lived in a very expensive metropolitan city and the housing market was just so crazy where we lived that um, it was just like when we actually retired and we didn't actually buy a house. And that was one of the reasons because we were able to put our money um, into the stock market and actually invest it and have us pay up, pay, have it pay us money rather than pay money into a mortgage. Um, that's just completely like mind blowing for people back home. Like even my parents were just absolutely disgusted by the fact that I didn't buy a house, like to the point where they're like, I was like, Oh God, I hope they don't disown me. Um, it, it's been really incredible the journey for the last, um, three years. Cause my parents kept looking at me and saying like, you're missing out and all your, your, you know, peers and friends and coworkers, they all have houses. And what are you doing? You're th- doing this crazy thing. But the crazy, the even crazier thing is that now that we've actually been traveling for the last four years and we have more money now than we actually started, uh, my parents have actually actually completely done a 180, um, completely come around. My dad started using our workshop and actually investing <laughs> in index funds. It's true, he um, did. <laughs> yeah. And then like when I called him for Father's Day, um, he actually said, I'm proud of you, like for the first time ever. And I, I just completely like broke down because I just could not believe that, um, you know, that mm. just by show, instead of actually just telling them that this is not the traditional way doesn't make, make sense, we decided to show them with actual um, with action and to show them that, Hey, we are going to be fine financially. And we actually have more money than we started. And we're much happier. Like I don't have any of the health issues that I used to have when I was working. And the last time we got a checkup, um, Bryce's doctor said he was obnoxiously healthy. It's true. He did say that. (laughs) And, and, uh, and I I think, you know, there's probably a parallel with your background here, but Asian parents never, ever, ever, ever say they're proud of you. Like it just, (laughs) Oh, I know. (laughs) I read Tiger Mom. Okay. I read that book. So I know. I, yes. Yeah. Yes. I bet, I bet you have stories about this too, yeah. but it's because they, because they see that as a weakness, right? Like they, they, they see that as like, a, if you tell your kids you did a good job, they're going to stop trying. Oh. Um, <laughs> but the, the, and for like, honestly, after we left, like when we last spoke, I mm-hmm. think Christy and her parents were in like a, multi-year long fight well we were we were yeah having some disagreements about the housing that's a nice my mom's like you're a millionaire you don't have a house who cares so they weren't (laughs) even like they weren't even talk they they didn't even they didn't even speak to each other for like like honestly like a year and it was only when they started like their friends started seeing hey is this your daughter like they were seeing her in the news and they were seeing her on podcasts like you're hearing about podcasts like yours and you're famous yeah your daughter you're like wow I like you're amazing. You must be an amazing dad. And he was like, uh, like, maybe she's not an idiot. Maybe I need to rethink. (laughs) Nothing like proving your parents that you were right. Right. Happy for Christy and her family now that they've been able to make peace. That was episode 909. If you'd like to listen to the full conversation, shifting gears a bit to a totally different money talk, but one that still concerns the delicacies of relationships managing money post-divorce with your ex. Entrepreneur Samantha Razuk, founder of Curious Jane, a camp and content platform for girls, joined me on episode 906 back in July. She really opened up about the realities of her divorce, kind of unexpected, but glad we went there, and how she and her husband worked on a so-called collaborative divorce, how it was not only affordable, but how it kept them sane. Here's our excerpted conversation. 
You've been very open to talking about your divorce. And I think I read an article about uh, in Authority magazine, just about, you know, five things you need to know to survive and thrive after a divorce. It was an interview mm-hmm. with you. And in that article, you talk about collaborative divorce. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm curious from maybe just even because this is a money podcast, right. we can talk about it from that perspective. Of sure. Divorce can be expensive. And I know that you guys were very conscious, you and your ex-husband, about how you proceeded with the divorce. Mm-hmm. There could have been a scenario where there were lawyers involved and it got really, mm-hmm. you know, sort of strenuous, but also expensive. Um, how did you navigate that? And given that, like, you know, perhaps you didn't want to, this to become another financial burden. Right. Um, what were those conversations like? And how, what would be your recommendation for people listening who are like, Hmm, you know, how did she do it? Sure. So I, and I will speak to the money portion of it, but our decision, um, around, um, going the route of a collaborative divorce, I think he and I, which doesn't mean that it isn't acrimonious or that it was a joint decision, which it can be. Um, but those pieces can still be there. Um, I think we felt, you know, we are, we are, two people who chose to enter into this marriage and family. And that was our responsibility. And now it is our responsibility. And we're both willing to take that responsibility together to restructure our family and take ourselves out of this. And one thing I do often say is, you know, certainly getting married um, to someone else, very intimate, having family with them, very intimate, going through a divorce with someone in this way is a very intimate experience. Um, And the way that you have to trust the other person, um, specifically to the money portion of it, pursuing a collaborative divorce is much less expensive. You have a single lawyer who represents the wishes of the two of you and then basically guides and translates that into the legal structure that needs to surround um, the divorce. So it was my, my husband and I, the way mechanically that we did it is we chose kind of a lunch period once a week where we would meet and we would go through, um, some of the aspects of the divorce. And that was, that was extremely hard work. Um, we limited ourselves to 45 minutes, you know, in a nice public place and we kept notes. Um, and all of that work on our end that was between the two of us, um, it was certainly beneficial for our family, but then on the money side of it also kept, you know, when we were paying for professionals, which, which we did when we needed, and then also continued to see a couple's therapist as well. Um, then that our, our costs overall were, were very low. The other, the other piece of advice, and she mentioned that, that I would, that I would share with listeners is, um, not everything in a divorce has to be tackled all at once. And I think that the stress of that can actually have ramifications on the, the money in the cost of it. So it's such high stress. You're, you're paying for so much time to figure out something, but you, you can pace it out. You know, you can talk about property. You can talk about what the, what the schedule will be with the children and you can spread those things out a little bit and it, it, it helps give it a little bit of breathing room and then actually cost less. And then there's the aftermath of divorce with, when, when you're co-parenting, like how to communicate around the money then Mm, what has been some of the learning there? Um, well, I would say that we go about it in a pretty unconventional way. I, I keep the, the books, I keep the books in my job, in my work and I keep the books for our family. Um, at this point I'm six years out. I think the first few years were pretty, were pretty rough. 
Um, as far as communicating, we everything is 50-50, right? So we don't have, there's not alimony, and then the joint expenses for the children are shared 50-50. So that's my very specific perspective that we're coming into it with. Um, and then at this point, you know, he trusts me to keep the books. We kind of review them. I just use Quicken. We review them maybe on a quarterly basis. Oh, this really wasn't a joint thing. Oh, I'm going to take care of the health expense, you know, the health insurance. And we go over it in that way. I would say that at this point, without a formal contribution structure into the joint account, it amazes me that at the end of the year, um, when we, we sort of do our tally and even up, um, that we're within a couple thousand dollars of each other as far wow. as our experience. And that again was episode 906, capping our best of 2019 for conversations about money and relationships. I could not complete this episode without an excerpt from my interview with female household breadwinner, Bethany Baines, who's also the director of strategic partnerships at Google. Bethany has what she calls a flip family When her husband was laid off, it felt natural for him to become a stay-at-home dad, and they soon realized that many of their friends and family saw it differently. In her efforts to create a community for fellow female breadwinners, Bethany founded the Breadwinning Women at Google, 1,300 women strong around the globe. And in this excerpt, she discusses her personal reasons for wanting to create this community, as well as some of the difficulties she faced in her own marriage in the beginning as breadwinner. You run the Breadwinning Women organization at Google, um, and you're kind of seeing this take on a whole life of its own, which is what I discovered too when I came out with When She Makes More, that there are so many people that want to talk about this, but are scared or don't have the the language or um, don't feel mm-hmm. connected to anybody. And so let's start with your personal journey through this, because unlike my circumstance was that I always was the breadwinner in my marriage and it was always expected that of me, like that, that was just how we, how it was understood um, from the day one, your dynamic in your relationship, you call kind of like the flip family where your husband got laid off and there was a conscious decision to have him become the stay-at-home dad and you rise up as the breadwinner, sole breadwinner. So take us back to that moment. I'm sure it was a very tumultuous time and you had a lot of maybe conflicted feelings about it or not. What was that decision like for you guys? Yeah. Um, I, first of all, I love that you use the term that we just don't have the language because that is something that I realize is uh, one of the pieces of this conversation that's so critical for us to give voice to is just saying the term breadwinner, saying the term stay-at-home dad, sole breadwinner, primary parent. Um, you know, my husband says he's retired, but it took us a while to figure out what the right language and verbiage was to describe our family. Um, and I think that is where, you know, you just start to feel all the holes in explaining how your family unit works. Um, so I think language is a really important part of this entire topic. So thanks for highlighting that. Um, so just back to, I think it was 2012. So I had just come back to work from my second maternity leave. So I have two kids. I have a 12 year old son and a seven year old daughter. Um, and I'd come back from my second maternity leave and, uh, you know, my husband was laid off, as you said. Um, now, up until this time, we were, you know, dual income family, our entire relationship. And then since we were parents um, 
when we moved from California to New York, where we're both from the East Coast originally, um, my husband's company was based far up in Connecticut. So he ended up with a full-time work from home scenario, um, which was incredible because he was always able to be home, whether there was, you know, a repair to be done or a delivery to be met, or he really loves to cook. So he did a lot of all the food sourcing and the cooking. Um, you know, when sick, a kid was sick, we were able to kind of juggle conference call slots and make it all work. So there was this baked in flexibility of our lifestyle, which we had become really accustomed to. Um, so when his company went into chapter 11, um, we were kind of expecting that he would get laid off at some point. There was many, many rounds. And so it wasn't so shocking to our system that it happened. Um, but you know, b- backing up a little bit, when we moved back to New York before we had our first child, we were in a very similar field, very similar roles, um, and making exactly the same amount of money. Um, but then I moved, you know, I was in tech and he was in higher education publishing. And so we knew pretty early on that we were both staying with these companies for as long as we were, that my earnings potential just really outweighed what higher education publishing would pay. So we had started to, I think it was on my first maternity leave with my 12 year old when I got promoted while on leave and my earnings went higher than my husband's. Um, But we still were dual income for several years. And then when he got laid off, we had this moment where he did start to look for another job. And we quickly realized that every other job, while maybe it was a little bit more money or at least the same amount of money that he was making would require him to not be home. So he had to be in an office every day or at least the majority of the time. And that was a really hard pill to swallow in terms of all the stuff we would have to outsource in order to make the household run the way it did, because I don't cook. Um, I've burnt down a couple kitchens in my life. So this is, I should stay out of the kitchen. Um, so we were like, okay, well, if we outsource somebody to pick up the kids and we outsource somebody to cook the meals or at least, you know, have somebody get it started before we come home. And then we're just starting to add everything up and it becomes a math problem. And I'm sitting at the time in an office at Google. So we all kind of sit on top of each other. I'm sitting in an office with four other dudes and all of them have stay at home lunch. Hmm. But I'm like, what are we doing? You know, why doesn't this, this makes complete sense. Um, and at the time, I and mean, my husband also really doesn't, and never has really identified with his professional career as his identity. Um, like Google is very much interwoven into who I am as an adult. And so that is a very hard thing for me to consider extrapolating from. But for my husband, he's a, you know, I said he likes to cook, he surfs, he skateboards, he's a singer songwriter. He, you know, he's got all of these different hobbies where he feels like he finds more of an identity than his professional career. So he was really open to the idea. Um, I was open to it in that I realized that it was going to make my job easier. So the challenges we had as a dual income family with two kids and the logistics that that requires was never, you know, it was never because I made more money that I did less stuff in the house. Right. Mm -hmm. So we were trying to be equal. There were things that I did a lot more of and things that he did a lot more of. I think when you have dual income families with children, 
there's just so much stuff to get done that everyone inherently feels like the other person is not doing enough. <laughs> like, I don't know if you actually scoreboarded it, who would come out on top. I know there's a lot of research that usually women come up doing more. Well, breadwinning women in particular that- do more. That's that's the uh, real shocker is that when women make more, they actually do more housework than women who make the same or less. Right. And that's I so and I think and I've, I've read that as well from you. And I, I think that's the piece where we start to get into these societal norms of masculinity and femininity and what it means and how we identify and how we kind of relieve ourselves of certain guilts in that area. Um, and men, too, you know, where if they feel emasculated because they're not contributing financially to the household, do they then, you know, take it in the reverse action to, mm-hmm. to kind of almost take it out or to fight it and resist it. Um, it's, it's a fast, that's a fascinating dynamic. I, so I a, think for us, you know, it, go sorry, ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so I think for us, it became like a very natural decision and it seemed to kind of mesh with, you know, both our lifestyle and also who we were as people um, in terms of how we thought about our career and how we thought about our family and obviously having the luxury to financially be able to have one of us stay home. Um, but I think what we weren't entirely prepared for was how everyone else would react once Mm -hmm. we made this decision. And that's the truth. Sometimes in your personal relationships, your financial decisions seem completely right and rational. But to the outside world, it can come across as foreign or unusual, or how are they making that work? And that can be a bit of a pressure point, I'll be the first to admit. It's why having constant dialogue with your partner is the key to your financial health and your marital health. And for that, I appreciate Bethany for her candor, for coming on the show. If you'd like to listen to more of our conversation, that was episode 928 from August. Thanks for going down memory lane with me. More 2019 reflections coming your way this week and next. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money.